All right, for those of you who are uh, visiting, I am the children's and youth pastor here, and the senior pastor is right here, Pastor Tony, but today I'm going to be speaking to you. Um, so if you want to, you can go ahead, and Nancy, it's good to see you. I love to see you here. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to, you go ahead and get, we're going to be all over the place, but the place I really want you to look at, and you can consider whether or not you want to highlight it or something, is going to be in Revelation 21, the first three verses, especially the third verse. Um, And before I jump into it, I want to share something. I was at a pastor's conference this week with a bunch of these really cool pastors, and in their congregations, miracles and healings are not uncommon at all. They just, they're very prevalent in these congregations of all these pastors, And even though I don't think it was planned, the message of all the pastors that spoke was, don't seek miracles. Don't seek healing. Seek Jesus. Seek Jesus. And in Jesus is healing. In Jesus is miracles. In Jesus is the presence of Jesus. That's where it is. It's in Jesus. And so uh, my friend, Pastor Jason Saglin-Benny, we were talking afterwards, and he was saying, what do the churches want for their congregations? Do they want to be more active in the prophetic? Do they want to be more active in evangelism and winning souls? Do they want to be more humble? Do they want to be more compassionate? Do they want to be whatever? Do you know it's the same way to get all that stuff? Is get Jesus. Like, get before his face, and the Bible says that as we gaze upon his face, as we worship him, as we meditate on him, that we are transformed into his image. And who is more prophetic than Jesus? Who heals more than Jesus? Who is more compassionate than Jesus? Who wins more souls than Jesus? So I just had to bring that up. So, all right. So today... Um, We're going to be talking about Sukkot, uh, which is the festival of tabernacles, Um, and you might not know what that is, and that's totally fine. I'm going to tell you what it is, but before we we start digging into that, let's look at that verse that I mentioned here. So it says, in Revelation 21, 2 through 3, then I, John, so he's having a vision that Jesus is giving him. It's right there in the beginning of Revelation, it says, This is a revelation of Jesus. Jesus is revealing himself, his heart, and he's giving a vision of the future and to to John, the disciple. And John says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God will be with them and be their God. I want to let you know that this is the whole point of everything. Verse 3 specifically sums up the entire Bible in that one verse. The whole point of the cross was verse 3, that God would dwell with us, that 
God himself will be with us and we will dwell with him. He will dwell with us. Sometimes we limit the concept of the cross to um, he forgave us our sins and now we can go like be part of the church and we can be Christians. And But the cross is so much bigger and the impact is so much wider. Because of the cross, we are going to get to have this. At the end, God will dwell with us like face to face in glory here. It's all about, it's all he ever wants is dwelling. From the beginning to the end is to dwell with us. That's all he ever wants. And this festival that we're going to be talking about today is just one of the bazillions of things in the Bible that points to the fact that all God ever wanted was dwelling and that the purpose of the cross was so that we can dwell with him. We can dwell with him and he will dwell with us. So let me read it in the NLT, verse 3. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. I just love it. The culmination of all scripture right there. It's what he wants. It's what he's been desired. It's what he's excited about. You know that verse for the joy set before him, he endured the cross? It was that Revelation 21 verse 3 that he was thinking of, I'm going to dwell with my people. That's the joy that was set before him. Emmanuel is what the Bible calls Jesus, which means God with us. The very nature of Jesus is that he is a person that wants to dwell with us and us to dwell with him. And it is, as I said, the very thing that this Feast of Tabernacles points to, Sukkot, it's sometimes called. Now, outside of like Messianic synagogues, it's kind of rare in, in for a lot of churches to know a lot about some of these other Jewish feasts. You know, sometimes we're more familiar with Passover. That one's very blatant. You know, the, the lamb that was slain to bring them out of slavery. Oh, Jesus, obviously, yeah. So we really like that one. But, but all the ones that God made are actually just as powerful. And they, they're all about Jesus. And uh, so I'd like to get into to what it is. Um, it is a holiday that is created by God. And uh, we want to look into this today because we want to know Jesus more. That's, that's why we're looking into the Festival of Tabernacles, because the Festival of Tabernacles is the story of Jesus desiring to dwell with us. And so we want to know him more through this, because knowing that Jesus is the meaning of life, his beauty and his majesty and his wonder and his power and his loving kindness and his good thoughts towards you. Let's know this more. Let's know Jesus more. All right, so the Feast of Tabernacles is one of seven big holidays that God gave his people. It was they were created by God. And there's a difference between holidays that are created by God and holidays that commemorate stuff God did. So there are good holidays, even holidays that God established in the Scripture that Jesus himself celebrated that God did not create. Uh, like uh, Purim, you can find the, the creation of Purim in the book of Esther. You can see that Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. And, and these things commemorate amazing things 
that God Almighty did for his people, and they reveal his character, and they're wonderful. But there's a big difference between a holiday that man came up with and a holiday that God came up with. Because a holiday that man came up with, it does one thing. It commemorates an event. Like, yeah, let's continue to celebrate this. Let's continue to remember this. But everything that God does is so multi-layered. Uh, a holiday that God creates, it, it, it commemorates something God did. It speaks of the past. It speaks to how we live our lives right now. It prophesies of this future. And it always tells of Jesus. So we can't, we don't have that sort of ability to make all these things happen. But God created seven holidays that do these things. Um, it's also called, just for your information, it's called the Feast of Boosts, the Feast of Shelters, the Feast of Ingathering, and it's called Sukkot, which is just Hebrew. It's a plural. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. It's a plural for the word uh, huts or booths. Um, and if you're curious, Sukkot for us this year starts on sundown next week, September 29th, and lasts until nightfall on October 6th. It is seven days long, and it is the seventh and final of God's holidays. The day after the festival, on the eighth day, is a day of thanksgiving for God's blessings, which is weird that it's not like you have the, the holiday, which is seven days, and then right after it, even though that's the last holiday, it's a day of celebration for all that the Lord has done. It's very cool, though. So it commemorates how God took care of the Israelites for 40 years as they lived in tents in the desert and how God eventually brought them into the promised land. And it looks forward to how he will do it again in the future, but on a much larger scale. The fact that it is on the seventh, the fact that it is the seventh holiday and that it lasts seven days is not insignificant. Um, think of Jericho. So in Jericho, uh, the people of God were living in booths out in the desert, depending on his manna and everything. And then they come to this city that is like, once this city is taken care of, we can then move into and claim the promised land. The city stood in their way. And so God said, here's how you take care of this city. You march around this city for seven days. And then on the seventh day, walk around the city seven times. And then I will give you victory. And you shout and and so forth. And it's, it's the same way with this story that we're going to see here, the story of the Festival of Tabernacles, the seventh holiday that lasts seven days, which is a symbol of what God is going to do for us at the end of the age, what he's doing for us now, and you will see. I just, I'm excited for you to get this. It's just so much fun. Um, I'm, I'm going to skip a lot, too, because, wow, I got a lot of notes. Um, it's going to be a picture, let me just tell you ahead of time, of when all the people of God, Jew and Gentile, the bride of Christ, leave this temporary dwelling, this broken world, this corruptible flesh, for an eternal dwelling with Christ in an incorruptible flesh here on a newly remade physical earth in the new Jerusalem, which will come from heaven, and it's all made possible by the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, so let's just real quickly, just so you can get it in your head, how it's celebrated both today and biblically, um, so we can start to see how it all tells this, this love story of Jesus. Um, well, let's just look at it. So uh, let's look at some pictures of how it's celebrated today. 
uh, if you could bring them up, Mr. Daniel. Um, so they, they hang flowers everywhere. Okay, you can go on to the next slide. So they, that, that's a sukkah, a, a dwelling. And people do it all different ways. Um, and they, they oftentimes they like to put uh, leafy structures on top so you can still see through it. And they have these little shelters. And, and most people stay in them all week, but some people just decide to just eat, have their dinners in them and whatever. That one just has a tent roof, but it's still a shelter. It's a dwelling, and you could go on. Uh, so, you know, there's an example of seeing through it. They hang fruit and stuff. Another picture. Just more, yeah. There's just all these different examples. This is a, um, the Bible specifies to take, uh, like, these various plants, and you wave them before the Lord in celebration. And that's a picture of this little kid who's preparing one. By the way, one of the most powerful moments we ever had in youth group was a year or two ago, two years ago, I think. And we actually were celebrating the Festival of Tabernacles, and we built a little sukkah um, with palm fronds and stuff. And then um, we, we had everybody march around the sanctuary. I'm getting a little emotional thinking about it because it was so powerful. Um, with palm fronds, and we talked about how Jesus did this. Jesus was doing this. We got to participate with Jesus as uh, we were marching around with these palm fronds in worship of the Lord and everything he's done. And it was just so, so powerful. So, yeah, I don't know if there's any more pictures. You can just skim through them. Yes, yeah, some were really elaborate and some were uh, just on their porches or whatever. So people, and some were really big. Look at that. Am I, am I back? Yeah. People celebrated all different ways. The point is that um, well, let's look at what the Bible says on how to celebrate it. Leviticus 23, 33 through 43 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord on the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and a drink offering, Everything on its day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all the freewill offerings which you shall give the Lord. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of your land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves the first day, the first fruit uh, the fruit of beautiful trees and sorry, it says the fruit of beautiful trees and palm branches and bows of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And then some other 
key points to remember about this holiday that God created. We can see in Numbers 28.7 and Isaiah 12.3. And it talks about water being poured out. So Numbers 28.7 says, In a holy place you shall pour out the drink to the Lord as an offering. And in just a minute, we're going to see what powerful thing Jesus did on that very day. Isaiah 12, 1 through 3, is what they uh, referred to in their minds, is what they talked about in later years um, when they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles and they would pour out the water. So way back, hundreds of years before, you know, they got this from the Lord, pour out water, pour out a liquid offering. And then they began to associate that with Isaiah 12, 1 through 3, which is prophetic of when the Messiah would come. And it says, oh, Lord, I will praise you, though you were, oh, it says, in that day, you will say, so it's prophetic, in that day, talking about when Messiah comes, oh, Lord, I will praise you, though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so the Jews would think about this. They would talk about this. They would commemorate it as they would pour out the water. And they're saying, thank you, Lord, for the water you provided. We recognize this is just a picture of you are going to draw water We are going to draw water from the wells of salvation because of your Messiah that we are waiting for. So that was the concept, even before Jesus came. So let me point out these seven points about just those verses we covered so far about Sukkot, about this holiday. So assembly is big. They gather the people together. Two, they make offerings or worship to God, and they are offerings made by fire. Think about that for a minute. Um. Three, the harvest, the literal harvest is complete and, um, and, and brought in. It's an ingathering. So they go out into their fields. The harvest is done. They get their stuff and they bring it in. It's an ingathering. It happens at that time of year. Um, they celebrate with pomperons and stuff. It's four. Five, for seven days they live in shelters to remember the temporary dwellings of the Israelites after they were freed from slavery in Egypt. Six, They pour out the drink offering, thanking God for his provision and trusting in his continuous provision. And then seven, being aware that the water also symbolizes a future salvation in that day. So those are the seven points that we see that the Jews understood thousands of years ago. Um, And it's good for us to understand these too, because as a Christian, I think already you may be starting to see things in that. You're like, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute here. I think there's something else happening I think there's something deeper going on. So you're right. You are right. Um, Let me just add some stuff. Exodus 23, 14 through 16 says, so it refers to three pilgrimage feasts in agricultural terms. And the festivals of booths in this passage is referred to the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. The feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruit. Oh, that sounds exciting. What is that talking about? You know, maybe some of you are starting to put this together. Um, But before we look at how this is all about Jesus and how it relates to even us, most of us non-Jews today, let's look at how the other six of God's feasts are revealed 
in Jesus because it's this progressive story. And then when we get to the last one, you're going to be like, oh, it all fits together. It's amazing. All right, so Colossians 2, 16 through 17 says, so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. By the way, there's like a load of verses in the New Testament that talk about how everything in the Old Testament is just pictures of Jesus. This is one of them. It says that all seven of God's feasts are just a picture of Jesus. It's a substance of Christ. So with that in mind, let's look at these other six. So Passover, we already kind of know that one pretty well. Exodus 12, 13. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. God passed over the Hebrews when he saw the blood of the lamb, a picture of the crucifixion of Christ. The blood of the sinless lamb of God was shed so that the wrath of God would pass over us. We are made right with God because of him alone. Jesus was crucified on the very day of Passover. I don't know if you know that part, but that is awesome. On the day of Passover, Jesus was crucified. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. John 1.29 says, Behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Then we move on to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast number 2, Exodus 13.7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. This speaks of the sinlessness of Christ. When he was buried, our sins were buried with him, and we were raised to new life in freedom, free of having the shame and condemnation of that sin. We are free from that. Our sins are buried with the sinless Christ who took it all. Exodus 12, 17 says, Celebrate this festival of unleavened bread, for it will remind you that I brought your forces out of the land of Egypt on this very day. So it's now it's also looking back at this thing that he did in the past, which is the fact that he's saying we are about to, like God is saying, enough slavery for you. Enough. Be free. Tonight's the night. This is the day of your salvation. We are leaving. Don't bake your bread with yeast. It's going to take too long. Today is the day of salvation. So it says remember that. 1 Corinthians 5.8, Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So if you, not being a Jew, you want to figure out how you can celebrate this without trying to figure out all the ritual stuff, just do this part. <laughs> just say no to the unleavened bread I mean, say no to the leaven of malice and wickedness and yes to the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's how we worship God in spirit and truth. So Jesus, just so you know, was in the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Surprise, it all, it all fits. Third feast, Feast of First Fruits. How was that celebrated? Leviticus 23, 9 through 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, and you reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath. The priests shall wave it. All right, so they just had 
the harvest. They get the first fruits of the land. They take it and they wave it before the Lord and the, um, the high priest. Uh, oh, no. It says the Lord will then accept your offering, the first fruits of the land, the very first fruits of the land. So now you might already know these verses to make sense of it. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. And then Romans 8, 29 says, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son will be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Jesus is the first fruits. We were not acceptable offerings to the Lord. We, what do we have to offer God? Our righteousness is as filthy rags. We have nothing to offer him. But Jesus says, ah, oh, I got it. I will be the first fruits. I will give myself as an offering to the Lord, but I'll be the first of many. Because of what I do, you are now acceptable offerings. So Jesus made himself. And can you guess when Jesus resurrected? You got it. He resurrected on the day of first fruits. 50 days later, we get to the Feast of Weeks, also called Pentecost and a bunch of other names. Man, Fed's not here. He loves Leviticus. I'm just all over Leviticus today. All right. Leviticus 23, 15 through 17 says, From the day after the Sabbath, the day you bring the bundle of grain to be lifted up, a special offering, which we just talked about, count off seven full weeks, keep counting until the day after the seventh Sabbath, 50 days later. Then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves of bread to be lifted up before the Lord as a special offering. Make these loaves from four quarts of choice flour and bake them with yeast this time. They will be an offering to the Lord from, your, from the first of your crops. I honestly think that this would be my favorite of the Jewish holidays just because you got fresh baked bread. There ain't nothing better than that. And so they come and they bring in this fresh baked bread, thick, fluffy bread, and they give it to the Oh, my goodness. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is about being without. You see? It's about being without sin. But Pentecost is about being filled. Filled with what? What happened on the day of Pentecost? The very holiday of bringing the filled bread before the Lord. Acts 2, you know this one. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Another gathering. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability which was prophesied in Joel 2. This is amazing. This is what we have. You see, Jesus fulfilled the Pentecost that they were celebrating for thousands of years when he died and he said, wait, 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 I got something for you. Wait for this gift and then be filled with the Holy Spirit. And now... God dwells, dwells. That word dwell, we're going to be talking about that in just a second. He dwells inside of you. The 
God, all of God is in you. So these last three feasts speak of things Jesus has yet to do to a full extent, even though he's legally accomplished all of it at the cross. Everything in the universe that needs to be taken care of was taken care of at the cross. But we are going to see the fruit of these last three in days to come because they haven't happened yet. Um, Feast of Trumpets is next on the list. Leviticus 23, 23-25 says that it is to be a day of complete rest and commemorated with the blast of a trumpet. So what's going to happen in the future when there's trumpet blowing? Let's, let's see what the Bible says. Matthew 24, 31. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. This feast of trumpets speaks of the return of Jesus, the rapture, the raising up and transformation of the dead believers. This is, it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. Feast of atonement. This one, this one's interesting. Um, it's a little bit harder to figure out and some people actually uh, disagree on the prophetic meaning of it, at least. Um, but I do assure you, it is of Jesus. Uh, it's all about Jesus. I will tell you the conclusion that I came to, um, anyway, on this one. So, first of all, the word atonement re- means reparation for wrong or injury. And here's how it was celebrated. Leviticus 23:27. Also, the tenth day of the seventh month, shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And just so you know, this happens nine days after the Festival of Trumpets, and it is very solemn. Um, To me, it appears to speak of the time when Jesus will make reparation against his enemies. All those who did not place themselves under the covering of the blood and who fight against his people. Because we see that in scripture, that Jesus comes back and he literally physically goes to war against the enemies of God. And if you don't believe that, well, just read the Bible, it's there. Like he does this for real. And, um, and it's very solemn. But what we're seeing is Jesus all along was like, don't let this happen to you. Like get under the blood. I am saving you from the wrath of God. Everybody deserves the wrath of God, but bam, get under this. Get under this. Don't get the wrath of God. Jesus is our atonement so that you don't have to face a nasty atonement, you see? And so this nasty atonement is going to come for those who are literally doing horrible things and are trying to fight the people of God, like in the flesh, and then Jesus will come back into the war and just win because that's what he always does. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll see anyway if the Feast of Atonement means that or not. I don't care. We just know that Jesus is atonement. So, all right. And that leads us 
back to the Feast of Tabernacles, to Sukkot, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, it's talking about our flesh, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality shall be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is going to come in really, like this is a key right there. You'll see in a second. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, the tent, we are absent from the Lord in the fullest sense, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So verses 6 through 8 point out that home is about dwelling. So do we dwell on the things of earth or do we dwell with Jesus? Like this is available to us right now. We can dwell with Jesus. Again, Revelations 21.3, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people and he will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Those who love to dwell with Jesus in our limited tent, this piece of junk here, uh, uh, if we like to live with Jesus in our limited tent-like capacity, we will get to dwell with Jesus in a permanent palace-like capacity physically here on the earth. Very exciting. Very exciting. Um, some of us here, you know, like, here's Ray. I love Ray so much. He's so awesome. I took him to lunch this week. Ray is so cool, but if you don't know Ray, you should get to know him. Oh, my gosh. He's got awesome faith. He's a great man. Um, in the physical, he can't do backflips. Uh, his tent is just not set up for backflipping. <laughs> But you know what his tent is set up for? Holding all the glory of God inside of him. Amen. All the glory of God. He can dwell with the Lord. Um, just yesterday, I got this revelation. I'm going to skip some of these notes. Uh, in Psalm 90, verse 1, um, Daniel, if you could just skip over to that. It's like several verses ahead. I just want to talk about, I just, this was a brand new revelation for me yesterday morning. Psalm 90, verse 1. Moses, I didn't know Moses wrote Psalms, but he did. He wrote this one. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Okay? I want you to think about this. Before sin entered the world, we were invited to dwell with God. He could be our dwelling place. When sin entered the world, we are invited uh, into the dwelling of God. Before the law, we were invited to dwell with God. During the law, we are invited to dwell with God. The Holy Spirit is poured out 
you are invited to dwell with God. One day, God will come back to earth. You are invited to dwell with God. Uh, See, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And the fact that it is uh, invitational and you can reject it is seen in the next chapter, Psalms 91.1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So we have the choice to dwell. Um, Let me just show you what happened, though, at Pentecost. You know how it said that we were given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as as a down payment, as a promise? Because I'm skipping my notes, it's getting a little confusing for my brain, but we're going to try this. Um, at Pentecost, it says, not only are you invited to dwell with me, which that invitation never goes away. It's all generations. All generations throughout all time, you are invited to dwell in me. But at Pentecost, I'm coming to dwell in you. So, you remember when Jesus prayed Lord, may they all be one like, like me and you are one, I and you and you and me, them and us. Like, that's this picture. Like, he desires such a dwelling that it's like, it's like all mixed up. It's like we are dwelling in him. He is dwelling in us. Jesus is dwelling inside of us. We are dwelling in Jesus. That sort of intimate dwelling. It's the same sort of dwelling that Jesus has with the Father that he wants for us. There's so many cool verses. I'm, I'm not even going to read them anymore. Because what I realized is the more I looked into it, everything is about this topic. And so if I were to keep studying, I would eventually have had to reference every single verse in this Bible. Because everything, and, and really, I'm like... You'll be surprised. Like, so I gave you all the verses that I planned on using. There's like 186 verses there. If you do a little study on them and you ask the Lord to speak to you, like you're going to be like, what? No way. And then once you have that in your mind and then you start studying other scriptures that I didn't even come across, you're going to be like, what? No way. <laughs> like... He really wants to dwell with us. And every single verse in the Bible says, people dwell with me. Tony's whole teaching last week, by the way, is the sequel to this one. So we did it in reverse order. So today's the prequel, I guess. Or, no, last week was the prequel. So, so go listen to his if you haven't heard it yet. Just dwell with him. So uh, just, let me just give you the invitation from, um, from the end of the Bible there which uh, Revelation 22, 17 says, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Let him who thirsts come. Hey, remember the water thing? Let me just, I forgot. I just wanted to say this part. This one's really cool. Um, on the last day of the Festival of Tabernacles in the New Testament, it is believed that the moment Jesus says, come to me, all who are thirsty, was the moment where thousands were gathered together and they were quiet and solemnly 
watching the high priest pour out the water as an offering to the Lord. And it is believed that that's when Jesus yelled out, making a big scene, come to me, all who are thirsty. And he says it here. This is the invitation. Come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So we have hope beyond this flesh. We have hope in this flesh. His dwelling, right now we dwell in part. You know, we have all of the glory of God in us. We just can't see it yet. We don't have full awareness because we got so much of this tent that doesn't work properly. But one day we'll see it clearly. But that doesn't diminish the fact that it is real right now. It's just our tent doesn't have the capacity to see how real it is. So let's, let's spend all of our life in a 100% pursuit of dwelling with Jesus. Give it all up for that because there's nothing more worthwhile. And Amen. let's, uh, I guess let's just have the band come up and let's worship him, give our all to him if you want to do that. And then, um, and then maybe if any of you don't know the Lord yet and you want to be saved and you want to have hope that when your tent wears out, you've got a palace, then... Uh, Come and talk to one of us, and we will tell you how to get saved. Just believe in Jesus.